You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, Domestic Violence in a Pandemic, a Primary Care Response. Our guest is Dr Jenny Neal. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respects to their elders, past, present and their families. So Jenny Neal is a long-distance runner, so just hold on to that for a moment. Jenny graduated from the University of Melbourne in 2003 and gained her fellowship of the Royal Australian College of GPs in 2014. She's a senior lecturer at Monash Uni, where she lectures on domestic violence. She's also a domestic violence GP educator as part of the Harmony Study, an RCT La Trobe Uni University of Melbourne project, and she's currently undertaking research in the area of domestic violence education. She's recently published an article on domestic violence and COVID-19 in the Australian Journal of General Practice. She's a GP in Baldwin, Victoria, and she does a lot of work with domestic violence survivors. And I think the best thing about Jenny is she's really practical and she has a lot of practical suggestions as well as solid information to share tonight. Great. Thanks very much. I am really passionate about this topic because this is a really common problem. Uh, But from what I I find talking to GPs, a lot of GPs have never really been trained in this area. And only one in 10 GPs actually ever ask women about domestic violence. One of the reasons that this is the case is a lot of GPs actually are a bit afraid of what happens if the woman actually discloses. They're not quite sure what to do next. So what I hope that you'll get out of this is not only will we talk a little bit about the effect of COVID on domestic violence and how to manage patients from that perspective, but you'll also get a sense of how to ask patients about it, how to respond to a disclosure, how to safety plan, but also some of the issues surrounding managing the whole family. And that can be obviously very, very complicated, but also how to support your registrars in managing domestic violence as well. And I also think that um, GPs are probably one of the best place professions to actually be supporting and helping uh, domestic violence survivors, uh, because we are actually very accessible to women. Now, this is a challenging topic. I will be using gendered language. I will be talking about survivors as being women and um, perpetrators of domestic violence as being men. Now, the reason for that is by far and away, most survivors are in fact women, but that is not to say that um, women can't sometimes be perpetrators of domestic violence and men can sometimes obviously can be victims, but I will be using gendered language. It is also a very horrific topic. The other thing is some of you, and in fact, I'm sure there will be some of you knowing how common this is, that have experienced domestic violence in your own lives or know of other people that have, and may, because of your personal experiences, find this to be a very challenging topic too. And I encourage you, if this does bring up things for you and you are finding this difficult, to reach out to your friends and family or your own GP to talk about this afterwards. Now, just to illustrate a a really horrific case, you all remember, I mean, it's been a bit clouded by COVID, unfortunately, but you all remember this absolutely horrific case at the beginning of this year. You can hardly believe it was actually this year that, in fact, Hannah Baxter, her her husband or her her, her ex-husband, I think she'd actually left him, actually burned her and her three children to death in a car. 
Now, it was, it was absolutely premeditated because he actually had to go to a petrol station, fill up something with petrol and go and pour it on them. So he actually knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. Interestingly, the media response, a lot of media reports are talking about him as the ex-NFL star and what a tragic family circumstance. No, it's not a tragic family circumstance. It's actually murder. Um, so a really horrific case just to, to illustrate so some of the terms that we're going to use here, I tend to use the words domestic violence and family violence interchangeably. They do mean slightly different things. Domestic means anyone within your household and family means anyone within your actual family of people that you're related to. But I tend to use them interchangeably. I will be focusing on intimate partner violence, but that is not to say that child abuse, sibling abuse. In fact, I've got a patient who was horrifically um, abused by her just adult son um, he, in fact, tried to strangle her and beat her up on a number of occasions, and I helped her leave that situation and get an intervention order out against him, which was really, really difficult because she was so worried her son would end out on the street eventually. So it doesn't have to necessarily be intimate partner violence, but that is our focus. The other thing I'd like to say is our focus today is on heterosexual couples, uh, partly because that's the most common scenario, but that's not to say that this doesn't happen in LGBTQI relationships. But today that's not going to be my focus because um, that's not the group of people that I'm generally working with. But please be very mindful that this is also an issue in that community as it is in any community. So the uh, World Health Organization definition of intimate partner violence is basically um, behaviour within any intimate relationship that causes harm. But really importantly, it can be by either a current or a former partner. And I think a lot of people forget that and think that it has to be a current partner for it to be domestic violence. But in fact, a lot of domestic violence is actually perpetrated by ex-partners. And in fact, when a woman leaves is one of the most risky times in the whole relationship. So she's actually most at risk of being killed when she leaves the relationship. So being uh, abused by an ex-partner is probably one of the more risky things. So I won't go into all these stats, but it's really just to illustrate that this is a really common problem. So somewhere between eight to 28% of all women within the last 12 months, okay, who have attended GP practices have been victims of domestic violence within the last 12 months. So that's really, really common. And you think of the number of women that you've seen in your practice within the last week, then you kind of put those stats to it and you think, goodness, there's actually quite a lot of cases there that I don't know about. Um, also, globally, a third of women have ever been survivors in a lifetime. Okay, so really, really common problem. And in Australia, the most awful stat is that one woman per week on average is murdered by her partner. Some stats just to show you that it is more common that women are survivors. So the types of abuse, um, there are multiple types of abuse. We, we all know about physical abuse. We all know that women can be beaten up. Uh, they can have broken bones. They can, there can be attempted strangulation. Um, we all know about the physical abuse, but sometimes what we don't see is the other things. Psychological abuse can be just as damaging as the physical abuse. Um, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, um, you know, belittling her, uh, telling her everything is her fault all the time, uh, telling her she's an absolutely terrible person all of the time. It's social abuse, um, I, I had a case of this once. So social abuse basically means that the, the a partner is controlling um, his victim so that she cannot actually reach out to any family or friends. So in the case that I had, 
Um, he did not allow her to have any contact with family or friends and in fact used technology abuse to actually check her phone to make sure that she was not actually texting or calling any of the family members and she could only see the people that he wanted her to see. Uh, technology abuse, one of the other ways that that's often used is for people to be tracked. So using things like Find My iPhone, which a lot of, a, a lot of couples do actually use quite, quite reasonably. But sometimes this can actually be used as a mechanism of control to make sure that, that you know where she is at all times and that she's not going anywhere she's not supposed to. We know about sexual abuse. Just because you're in a relationship, just because you're married, it doesn't mean that sexual abuse or rape doesn't happen. Rape absolutely can occur within marriage. Uh, financial abuse. Another scenario that I came across was a woman that actually earned more money than her partner did, um, but he had control over all the bank accounts and all the money had to go into that bank account that only he knew the passwords of. And she wasn't actually allowed to access that money. And he would give her, I think it was somewhere between three to $500 per week for the family household items, which was for everything needed for the children, everything needed for food, for clothes, etc. And she was basically living under the poverty line, despite earning a very reasonable wage. So that's just an example of financial abuse. So what are we in at the moment? We're in a disaster, but this is a really unusual disaster because it's a really, really long one. We know from a lot of studies that have been done that domestic violence escalates during and after large-scale disasters. So all these examples, domestic violence really significantly increased after. But what we know also is that after disasters, domestic violence tends to escalate. And in fact, it often tends to increase for at least a year afterwards. What happens is that catastrophic events destroy the social networks. So what we're seeing with COVID, for instance, is that people are unable to necessarily reach out to their family and friends in the way that they normally would be. They're stuck home with their abuser. It may be actually quite hard for them to actually reach out to friends and family for help. So they don't have their social networks that they normally would have. Domestic violence has been increasing all over the world. These are just some reports from some countries, Wuhan in China. Straight after um, the, this whole thing started in January, there was increases in domestic violence there. Brazil, Spain, Cyprus, UK, France, and, and many other places have reported an increase. We have also had a significant increase. So Google, interestingly, reported that there was a 75% increase in internet searches relating to domestic violence support. 400 frontline healthcare workers reported 40% increased pleas for help and 70% reported increased complexity of cases. There was an 11% increase in calls to 1-800-RESPECT and interestingly, a 26% increase in calls to men's line as well. A study done by the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre Network just very recently, it only came out a few weeks ago, and what they did is that they interviewed lots of family violence workers throughout Australia to find out what was happening from their perspective. And pretty much most of them were saying that they were seeing an increase in number of cases um, since COVID had, had occurred, and 86% of them said there was an increase in complexity in the needs of the women that they were helping. They were also saying that they were seeing new forms of, of, of violence, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment as well. And a lot of women during this lockdown period are having less ability to seek help. Now, I'm from Melbourne, and I'm still in lockdown at the moment, so a lot of my patients are still in lockdown. And I've been seeing it. I don't think I've ever had so many active cases of domestic violence as once as I have had over the last few months. 
Um, I've had one woman who um, she had there had been previous abuse in their relationship. She's married with two young children, um, and she basically came to me. And she was able to come to me, fortunately, um, despite the lockdown. But she actually came to me and said, "You know, he attempted to strangle me. Uh, I'm actually really worried for my safety." And we organised for her to go to her mum's house. Uh, and so she was able to go there with her children and we organised an intervention order and so forth. So, um, you know, it, just to illustrate that the, the violence had increased because they were together in the house all the time and she really felt like that had made a really big difference. So what we're seeing is a new form of psychological abuse. We've seen some things all over the world. We've seen some new things like perpetrators telling their partner that they have the virus so that their partner can't leave the house. Um, inviting people into the house and saying that they've got COVID so she can't leave, uh, increased surveillance and control. One woman couldn't even be on, in the bathroom on her own so that he could watch everything that she was doing all the time, withholding essential items like cleaning equipment and abusive partners sharing misinformation about the pandemic and stopping them from getting medical attention. So some significant new ways of abusing. This is the paradox. When we say stay home, we're going to save lives because of COVID, but for many survivors of domestic violence, staying home may well not be actually the safest option for them. What I do want to point out is that abuse is about power and control. And so when you're at home with the abuser, the abuser can actually increase that level of control. And what I mean about power and control is I mean it's not about an anger management problem. Okay, it's not because he's got out of control and lost his temper and become violent. So I want to just give an illustration of that. Where does the violence occur? It occurs within the household. It doesn't occur at the major shopping centre. And if the violence is occurring and someone ring, a neighbour comes and rings the doorbell, what do you think happens to the violence? It stops because he has control over it. So um, it is about power and it is about control. That's what the violence is actually about. So getting back to general practice and how do you actually recognise whether someone is being abused? Physical symptoms, I mean, some of them are quite obvious. If you see people with acute injuries, like if they you know, have a black eye or they've got an unusual fracture or they've got some bruising somewhere else, it may well be worthwhile asking those women about the possibility of domestic violence. But we also see that a lot of women may well present many times to a GP uh, with non-specific symptoms and chronic symptoms like you know, chronic pain, chronic headaches, delayed presentation, those sorts of things. Um, you know, chronic pelvic pain, that sort of thing, they may present many times before they're actually happy to talk about the domestic violence. They want to talk about it. They want to be asked about it, but they're afraid to ask because they're afraid of what you, the GP, is going to say. They're afraid that you're not going to believe them. They're afraid that you're going to judge them and that you're going to blame them for what's happening. Okay, so that's why they don't bring it up. So most, you know, many, many women won't actually bring it up themselves and be wanting you to ask about it, which is why it's so important to learn how to ask. So some of the other presentations might be things like unplanned pregnancies, STIs, uh, vaginal discharge, and of course, emotional symptoms. Any women that I have at all that come in with any sort of mental health presentation, part of my process of, of history taking is to explore the possibility of domestic violence in those patients. So do please consider it in patients with anxiety or depression, PTSD. Uh, and PTSD is a really important thing in terms of domestic violence. It's not uncommon for women to end up with PTSD because of the violence. So suicide attempts, drug and alcohol problems, 
And the other really important one is accompanying partners. Now, of course, not all women who come in with a partner every time to see you are being abused. I'm not saying that. But it does raise a red flag to me when a woman, every time she comes in to see me in my clinic, her partner is always there. And especially if he does a lot of the talking for her. And that says to me, hmm, is there something else going on here? Is there a level of control here that she's not being allowed to be alone with me? Jennifer, there's just yeah. an interesting question that uh, sure. m- might be useful to just quickly, it's not a quick answer, but quickly talk about. Yeah, sure. And that is, the pr- what are the primary causes of domestic family oh, violence? Yeah. Are they victims themselves? Yeah, so men who perpetrate violence towards women are five times more likely to have had dads that did it. So, yeah, there is a lot of modelling happening here. Um, Really, it goes back to societal norms about gender roles and the old style of thinking, unfortunately, is still very much there in society, but that was very much there in the past, which was that women were subservient to men. Women had to do everything that their husband said. The man's the head of the household. Uh, the woman has to be told. Those societal norms really underpin why domestic violence occurs. And a lot of what is done in terms of, I'll talk a bit later on about men's behavioural change programs, but a lot of what is done there is to really explore respect towards women, equality of women, um, and, and, and the role of women in society as being equal to men. Um, so that, that really is what probably underpins domestic violence and why it occurs. Um, like I said, it's not about a man getting out of control. It's, it's actually about having control over her. So I mentioned some of the barriers already to her disclosing. She's, you know, sometimes she's worried about what the GP is going to say, but it might be also, also for her that she's ashamed of it. She might believe it's actually normal and that this is, this is just what happens in relationships. She might believe that it's her fault and that may well be because he's told her that it's her fault. A lot of the time with the patients I see, one of the reasons that women stay with their partner is that they really are hoping that he's going to change. They really hope that things are going to be different one day and they'll they'll be beaten up one day and then there'll be this honeymoon period afterwards where things are kind of sweet again and he brings her the flowers and says, I'm so sorry that I did that. And she thinks, oh, he's changing. I think things are going to change. She might be afraid for her safety. So she might be worried that if she discloses to you her GP that you're going to tell him because he might be your patient too Um, She might not realise that you have to keep these things confidential and she might be afraid that you'll disclose to him because if you do, then it may well be that her life is in fact at risk and she probably is quite aware of whether she's at risk or not. And so she might be afraid that you're going to be judgmental towards her as well. Doctors, unfortunately, don't ask very often. And what I'm hoping after this is that you will all be thinking about this very regularly and that you'll really be asking many of your patients about this, many of your patients that fulfill those sort of criteria I mentioned beforehand of those presentations. But any patient as well that you sort of go, something doesn't add up here. I think I need to ask about domestic violence. So they ask because they don't have enough time. Look, time is a major barrier. And we all know what it's like when you're running sort of half an hour behind already. And then a patient like this walks in the door and you think, oh, goodness, if I open that can of worms, I'll be an hour or more behind. And I just don't have time to do that today. But it may be that if you don't actually ask about it today, you've lost the opportunity and it's never going to come up again. You might not be sure of what to do if she discloses, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
some GPs and, and other doctors believe that it's a private matter, that it's not something that we medicos should be dealing with, or that we may actually be afraid of the abuser and that if we start getting involved, that we might in fact be at risk ourselves. In general, women do want to be asked, but most are not. So how are we going to ask? These questions have been put to women who have been victims of domestic violence and they've said that these are the ways that they like to be asked. We generally ask a really broad question at the beginning and you know it may not be the, your first topic. For instance, if someone's come in about anxiety or depression, you may have a bit more of a chat about how things are going at work first. You may have a bit of a chat about their sleep and different things like that and then you get to the, so how are things going at home? And they may just say, oh, you know, that fine, that's not, not a problem. You may be a little bit suspicious that there's still something else going on. So you might say, many women experience problems with their partner. Is this something that has been happening to you? That question in some ways sort of normalises it and says, this is a common problem. I see this all the time. Nothing you say can freak me out. Anything you say to me, I'll be fine with if you say that question. And alternatively, you could ask some things like, how are things going with your partner? Uh, do you argue much? What happens when you argue? Interestingly, it's actually the women who say to me, no, we never argue ever. I have to say, I worry more about them than the women that sometimes argue with their partner. Um, because to me, that says that she's probably so worried about having an argument that she doesn't even say her opinion ever because she's, she's just so afraid. Um, has he ever been violent towards you? After you've asked a few questions, you may become a bit more specific. Does he control your movements or who you're allowed to see? A really important question. Do you feel safe at home? Um, and of course, if she does disclose that she is a victim of domestic violence, it is important to then sort of think about the different forms of violence and actually explore them and find out what is actually happening on the ground. To ask her, she needs to be alone. You cannot ask her when he's in the room. Of course she's going to say no. It would be unsafe for her to say anything else. So please don't ask her with him in the room what you, what you need to do. And this doesn't happen very often, but if you do have a woman who always comes with an accompanying partner, remember that you as a GP are in control of your own consulting room. And you can actually say to him, just like you do when you see an adolescent and you send mum out to the waiting room, you can say to him, I always like to make sure I've had a chat to my patients on their own. Would you mind going out to the waiting room, please, and have a sit down and I'll call you in again at the end? Now, look, he might say no, but um, and, and there may not be much you can do about that. But you are in control of your own consulting room, so you can ask that. Don't ask her, though. Don't say to her, is it okay if he goes out? What do you think she's going to say? Because she, she wouldn't feel safe to say that it's okay for him to go out. So if you're the one that needs to say it. Here in Melbourne with the lockdown, one thing that I want to just highlight is if you have someone that you've been seeing quite often for a problem, whether it be a known domestic violence survivor or someone who's had a lot of mental health issues and you think, I haven't seen them for a long time, don't assume it's just because that they don't want to come and see you. It may be because they can't come and see you. Consider the possibility of domestic violence. It may well be that they're not actually being allowed out to see you and that they're having to be at home with their abuser. Telehealth. I think in many ways it's actually wonderful for most domestic violence survivors and probably has increased their access to care uh, and their ability to actually call for help both to GPs and have consults with GPs over the phone. But it may potentially increase risk in some cases uh, because she doesn't feel safe to talk to you and he may well be actually monitoring the whole conversation. You don't even know that he's there. You don't actually know that he's involved. 
So in terms of telehealth, what I advise you to do is to ask some yes, no questions first. Just say to her, is it safe for me to ask you how things are going for you at the moment? And that's a yes, no question. She can say no if she doesn't think that it's okay or yes if she thinks that it is okay. Or you can ask, are you alone? And that's a yes, no question. Yes or no. And so if she's being monitored in terms of what she's saying, uh, it's not as much of a problem. So start with some yes, no questions. And then, of course, if it is safe, you can then talk as you normally would. The fact is that she may not be alone on telehealth and you do need to really be considering it. But I think we should be considering this for all our patients at the moment. We're doing a lot of telehealth, particularly down here in Melbourne. Um, When you do, I think it's worth actually saying to whoever's on the other end of the line, just wondering who else is in on this call. Um, So you're always aware of who's in your consulting room. You should be aware of who's on the phone call. Doctors often feel about domestic violence consultations. They feel overwhelmed. I just want to remind you that it is not your job to solve all her problems and to stop the violence. It is your job to support her. It is your job to safety plan with her. It is your job to point her in the right direction in terms of referrals and resources. You are not there to solve all of her problems. Now, I had a colleague once that actually had a domestic violence patient come in and disclose about it, and she wanted to go back to her partner, and he was feeling quite despondent and said, I just feel like I didn't help her. I just, you know, I didn't do anything. I didn't stop it. I didn't, you know, I feel like I've done nothing in this situation. And I said, no, you have done so much. You have created a safe space for this patient so that in the future, if things get worse, she'll think, oh, that GP, he was really sympathetic. Uh, he wasn't judgmental. I could go back to him. I, I think, I think he, he would believe me. And this is essentially what you do in terms of disclosure uh, by a woman. So the first thing, of course, is to listen to her. And I want to just highlight to respect her, to respect her wishes, to respect what she wants to do, to inquire about her needs and concerns, to validate her. So tell her it's not her fault because it's not her fault. Violence is never her fault. Uh, Violence is never okay and everyone always deserves to feel safe. So to enhance safety, and that's to do a safety assessment, which we'll talk about, and to support her, which involves discussing all her social supports, but also referring her to appropriate services. So in terms of respecting her wishes, I just want to really highlight the fact that if a woman wants to go back to her partner, you need to respect that. Your your job is not there to sit there and go, oh, no, you must not go back to him. You must not go back to him. I'm not going to see you again unless you leave him or anything like that. No, our job is to respect what she would like to do. There are a lot of barriers to women leaving. And I think once you realise the barriers to her leaving, you'll understand why it often takes women a really long time to leave. In fact, we really treat domestic violence like a chronic disease. This is something that usually takes a period of many visits and and sometimes even years for a woman to actually leave the relationship, okay? So this is not something that's necessarily going to happen overnight. Barriers to a woman leaving, she might believe it's her fault. She might hope that it'll change like we've mentioned before. Housing, she might have nowhere to go. She might have no money at all, like those scenarios of financial abuse I mentioned earlier. What's going to happen to the children if she goes? So if you go to a shelter, a lot of the shelters say that if you've got a son above the age of 12, then that's not okay. They're not going to take males above the age of 12 in a women's shelter. So what's she going to do about the children in that situation? gets really, really tricky. She may have a lack of support from those around her, and it may be that a lot of the people around her are quite judgmental and don't actually understand what's truly going on and are not supporting her. 
And quite rightly, she may be afraid that if she leaves that she's going to be killed because we know that that's the most risky time for a woman. You can use the stages of change and motivational interviewing. And this is actually recommended by the World Health Organization in managing domestic violence survivors. So like I said, it's a bit like a chronic disease. Imagine it a bit like lifestyle change for diabetes or smoking cessation or alcohol cessation or something like that. So, you know, it's in terms of where she is at in terms of leaving the relationship and leaving the abuse. It might be that she's pre-contemplative and she's really not at that stage of wanting to even think about it at all. And that's fine. Your job then is to safety plan with her. Your job is to support her and be a place that she can always come back to if things escalate. She may be contemplative. And if she's contemplative, you can then actually use motivational interviewing to try and see if you can actually move her towards preparation and action. And what I mean by motivational interviewing, if you don't know what that means, is it's really where you work together with the patient. You don't tell her what to do. You actually workshop it together with her and get her to come up with the solutions to the problem herself. You might say things to her like, um, how confident do you feel about leaving your partner? One out of 10 being not confident at all and 10 out of 10 being really confident. She might say, oh, I only feel four out of 10. You say, well, four out of 10, that's not bad. That's better than one out of 10. What would it take to move you from four out of 10 to say seven? Um, what do you think would need to happen for that to happen? So you, you might have done this sort of thing already um, with uh, patients who are smokers, for instance. So it's a similar sort of process. And I, I wish I had more time to go right into you how to do motivational interviewing because I know some of you probably haven't done a lot of it, but we really don't have time, unfortunately, today. But it's something to just look into if you don't know much about it already. Assessing a woman's safety. One of the really key things is the violence escalating. And that's one of the issues that we're really seeing with COVID at the moment is that often in the situations that certainly I'm seeing and the reports that I'm hearing about is that the violence is actually escalating during this period. We know that, you know, with violence escalating, a woman is more at risk. Has he ever used a weapon? The question, does he have a weapon, is a bit of a tricky one because the reality is the most common uh, way for a, a man to actually kill a woman is using his hands. So, he, of course, he has a weapon. And then the second most common way is to use a knife. And where do you find a knife? Well, in everyone's kitchen. So, you know, everyone has a knife. Um, so has he ever threatened to kill her? That's concerning. I find non-fatal strangulation really concerning. So if a woman has experienced non-fatal strangulation, it should raise significant red flags as this may be a woman who may actually be killed one day. Um, we know that of 50% of intimate partner violence deaths, non-fatal strangulation had occurred prior to that. So, you know, really, really, um, really major issue. The most dangerous time for violence escalating are leaving, which I've mentioned, but also pregnancy. Pregnancy is a dangerous time for women who are survivors of domestic violence. And in fact, we actually recommend that we screen all women who are pregnant for domestic violence. And I know all the public hospitals certainly do this, uh, but it may be something that you might want to actually do in your practices as well. Even early on, even when you see people for their first trimester visits before they end up in the hospital, it is worth screening these women for domestic violence because it is a dangerous time. Does she feel safe to go home today? Really important question. Do you feel safe? She is actually an expert in her own safety. She has lived this probably for years. 
So if she says to you, yeah, you know what? I'm safe to go home today. She probably is safe to go home today because she's got a pretty good idea of what's happening on the ground uh, and also how to keep things pretty stable. That being said, I mean, I always get questions about what happens if you think that she's at imminent risk, but she's going to say that she's going to go home because all of Australia, apart from the Northern Territory, there is no mandatory reporting for domestic violence. Now, in the Northern Territory, that is different. There is mandatory reporting for domestic violence. But if you're in any of the other parts of Australia, there is no mandatory reporting for domestic violence. The RACGP White Book recommends that if you think that a woman is at imminent risk, and I'm talking imminent risk, I'm not just talking someone that you kind of go, oh, could something happen? I don't know, but she says she's safe. If she says she's safe, she's probably safe. Uh, but you actually go, oh, you know, she said that he, he said that he's going to kill her tonight and I know that he's got a gun and, you know, oh, doesn't sound like a good scenario. You know, that's the kind of scenario where even though there's no mandatory reporting. She's saying you, she doesn't want you to say anything and that she's going to go home. The RSCG White Book says in that situation, you should alert the police. Okay, so if you think she's at imminent risk, okay, there is danger in alerting the police. And she knows that because if the police get involved, it may actually make the violence escalate. Okay, so she may be concerned about the police being involved for that reason. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get them involved if you think that she's at imminent risk. If she actually feels that she's unsafe to go home, what do you do then? Well, that, that's when you're going to get on the phone and you're going to organise for her to go um, urgently to crisis accommodation and you're going to call uh, domestic violence. Um, I'm going to give you some numbers a bit later on, but you're going to call a domestic violence worker and you're going to get them involved. Um, you may need to get the police involved with her permission as well. Um, and it's worth offering to involve the police as well. You say to her, I'm happy to call the police on your half. Would you be happy for me to do that? Once we've assessed her safety, if she at all ever feels threatened, she needs to call the police. That is not the time to call 1-800-RESPECT. That's not the time to call a domestic violence caseworker. Uh, that's when she needs to actually call the police. That's when the police need to come over and, and actually get her into safety. Every single time you see your domestic violence survivor, you need to safety plan with her because her situation may well have changed and so her safety plan may well have changed. And that's what we're seeing in this situation with COVID is sometimes some of the safety plans that we've organised with our patients actually don't work anymore because they were to go to a certain person's house, but now that's illegal. So we have to actually safety plan all over again with our patients. What she also needs to do is be prepared. Be prepared that she may need at some point in time to leave in a hurry. So how do we safety plan? So the things she's going to have to think about is, does she have access to any money? Can she put some money somewhere in a safe place? It might be at a friend's house. It might be at a neighbor's house. It might be in a bag somewhere or in a car. Have a bag of clothes somewhere in a safe place. Important documents, usually copies rather than the actual documents because her partner will probably notice if the passport's missing, but some copies of some important documents. I like to tell my patients to tell at least two other friends what is happening so that they do have someone that can support them, whether it be friends or family or neighbours, it doesn't matter, but someone that they feel that they could trust to actually tell what is going on. And what they could potentially do with those people is actually use some code words so that if they needed to text them in a hurry to say, you know, come over, could you come over now and pick me up or something like that, they've got a way of doing that safely.
a spare set of keys so that they can access the car in a hurry. And the crisis is not the time to be making decisions about where you're going to go. You need to decide now what's going to happen in a crisis and what are you going to do with the children in a crisis? Where are you going to take them? Are they coming with you or aren't they? And that might be a conversation you need to have with her about what's going to be appropriate depending on the age group of the children. There's some current barriers due to COVID in terms of safety planning. There may be limited shelter availability due to social distancing in places like Melbourne. She will probably have decreased social supports and it may be difficult to leave the home or enact her plans. You could, on telehealth, use code colours like colour clothing to actually be your code word. So in terms of referring patients, preferably a warm referral. And what I mean by a warm referral is when you actually get on the phone as the GP and phone the services yourself. Giving her a phone number is still a really good idea because she may not necessarily want you at this point in time to call a service on her behalf. But if you can get her in with services to have that support, it would be a really good idea. So I'll share with you some phone numbers in a minute. But if you can make a warm referral and refer her on her behalf, that would be great. Um, In terms of phone numbers to give her, I actually like to give women the number 1-800-RESPECT. Now, the reason I do that is because it's really, really easy to remember. Most women can remember it without it having written down because writing it down may be dangerous. I mean, having it written down inside her wallet or purse, it may potentially be found by the perpetrator who wonder what that phone number is and it may cause the violence to escalate. So giving her the number 1-800-RESPECT is a really safe thing to do. Now, that number is really a counselling service. It's a 24-7 service, but the benefit of that service, it is not a crisis service, but the benefit of that number is that they can push her on to the most appropriate service for her given her situation. They'll have a long list of all the phone numbers in her area and that are relevant to her particular situation and they will be able to put her on to the right people. So I think that that's quite a good number to give her. You may also consider giving her a brochure of some description. If you are going to do that, um, just be mindful, you know, check with her that it'll be safe for her to carry that with her. Um, If you're putting brochures in your rooms in terms of domestic violence, and look, I think it is a good idea, don't put them in your waiting room. It's actually not the appropriate place because if she comes with her partner, she's never going to take it. She's never going to read it because it's not safe there while her partner's there. The place to put it is in the toilet. Because if she goes to the toilet, she's going to go there alone and she'll see it there. And of course, in your consulting room, if you're with her alone, you can give it to her as well. Inviting her back for follow-up. Remember, this is like a chronic disease. So just as you would for any other chronic disease, make sure you organise follow-up with her. Really important. You are creating a safe space for her. So even if at the moment nothing's changing and she's going back to her partner and you feel like you're not achieving all that much, you don't realise that you have achieved a lot and she's thinking to herself, maybe I'll go back to that GP and talk to them about what to do next. So what can services do for your patients? So um, crisis services can help organise for her to go to crisis accommodation. Crisis accommodation, even I don't know where the buildings are. They're on purpose. They actually don't, even the workers that work in them know where they are, but they will not tell anyone where they are working And from time to time, they will even change the location to keep the women safe, okay? They're like safe houses, essentially. But a woman can't stay there forever. And it does sometimes become difficult in terms of accommodation and finding them housing afterwards. 
Um, so housing can be an issue for these women. Well, what happens in terms of housing? Can you get the perpetrator out of the house and get her in the house? It is difficult, but one of the best ways to do that is through an intervention order because if she's in the house and there's an intervention order in place, then if he comes anywhere near her, usually they put a certain number of metre distance that he has to stay away from her. It might be that he has to stay 200 metres away from her or something like that and he's not allowed near her residence or her workplace. If he comes within that distance, then he's breaching his intervention order and that is then a crime and the police can actually arrest him and can actually charge him for breaching the intervention order. So that's probably the best way to keep her in her own home. That being said, if you're worried about safety and she's worried about safety, you're usually best just to try and get her out of the house and away from him where he doesn't know where she is. So if it's a safety issue, it is best just to get her out. In the long run, you know, family courts and all that sort of thing sort out the housing issues, but that's really fraught and it's a really, really difficult. I mean, that, that's another lecture in of itself, I think. What else can these services do? They can offer counselling, they can safety plan. I do quite a lot of work with a multicultural agency here in Melbourne um, that actually case manages women. They have about 28 different languages that are spoken in that particular agency. And their caseworkers work with migrant women and they actually even have a lawyer in-house that helps them with visa issues. I haven't even mentioned visa abuse. You know, visa abuse for these women is a really major issue and something just to think about if you've got people here on visas. So if she's here on a spousal visa, she may well not want to leave him because if she does, she actually might get kicked out of the country. And there may be absolutely nothing you can do about that except try not to tell the authorities. So um, getting her legal help can be really important. And that's one of the things that the caseworkers might be able to do is actually point her in the right direction in terms of legal assistance as well. Some of the numbers, um, the men's referral service is the number to call in terms of organising referrals to men's behavioural change programs. And we'll talk about that in a moment. You know, there are hundreds of different numbers, but the best thing to do is to call your statewide local number and they will actually then point you in the right direction or her in the right direction and give you the appropriate number, whether it be for someone who's in the LGBTQI community or whether it be, in fact, that the man is actually the victim or whether, you know, whatever scenario it may be, there will probably be a number for it and they'll point you in the right direction in terms of that. If you've just gone, oh, my goodness, I want all the phone numbers or you want to know where it will be, we will have it there for you on our website recording page. Uh, the other thing you can do is if you're on your local health pathways, and most, most of you probably have access to a health pathways, they will usually have local numbers as well. So that's a really good way of getting local domestic violence numbers as well. The managing men who are violent towards women, how do they present? Well, often they don't. I mean, often you have no idea that some of the men that you're seeing are in fact violent towards women. In fact, to you, they're quite charming um, and, and you would have absolutely no idea what's actually going on. Sometimes I've seen men who are violent towards women because in fact, the woman has brought them in and said, he's being violent towards me. Can you fix him? What can you do about it? So that's probably going to be the most common way that a man will present to you is that she's going to bring him in. What kind of men are perpetrators? Look, at the same way that women can be from any socioeconomic group, they can be from any religious group, they can be women who are victims, can be from all walks of life, whether they're educated or not educated, it's exactly the same with men who are perpetrators. They can be from any socioeconomic group. 
and all walks of life. So what are men's behavioural change groups? Well, before I talk about that, I just want to point out that we really, really, really do not want you to send your patients to couples counselling. Please don't do it. Um, it is really, really dangerous to do that because when you put a couple where there is such a significant power imbalance in front of a counsellor, he is going to have all the power in that consultation. She is going to have none. Her voice is definitely not going to get heard and his is. And if she does happen to speak up, it's going to put her at danger. Um, so we really discourage couples counselling. And in fact, it's not appropriate for you to send a man who's violent towards women to a psychologist because it, you think he's got a psychological problem. This is not a psychological problem. This is a behaviour problem. So he needs to go to a men's behavioural change group. The men's referral service number that I gave you earlier, that's the number to call to organise to go to a men's behavioural change group. They usually run about 12 weeks. About half the men that are there are there because the court said they have to go there. Half the men that are there are there because they actually do want to genuinely change. What's the likelihood of change occurring? Uh, probably 30 to 50% of women whose partners go to these programs say that they felt safer after their partner had done the program. Now, remember I said safer. I didn't say that the violence had stopped altogether, just that they felt safer. So in many cases, it doesn't change things at all. The likelihood of change isn't brilliant, but there is some possibility of change. In fact, it's interesting that in a lot of women actually find that when their partner's going to the Men's Behavioural Change Program, that's the time that they actually feel most safe to leave because either the violence has started to reduce a bit, so she's gone, oh, I'm actually feeling like he won't kill me if I leave. Maybe, maybe I'll actually get out of this now. And he kind of goes, that's funny. I thought I was changing. Why has she left? But he sort of doesn't realise what's really been going on. The other thing is that women sometimes feel like because he hasn't changed and the violence hasn't stopped, they go, oh, well, now I realise that there isn't any hope. I thought there was hope of change, but there's not. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave now too. So it sometimes allows women actually a breathing space to actually feel safe to leave. Really important question as GPs, because we manage the whole family. Can I manage both the woman and her partner as a GP? No, we, we really discourage this. Of course, if a woman brings in her partner, you're not going to say at the beginning of the consult, I don't do partners together, leave. No, you're going to take a history, find out what's going on, appropriately refer him to a men's behavioural change service, but also say, but I'm only going to be managing one of you from now on. So, you know, and it may well be that you've got a relationship with the victim. So you say, you know, I'm going to be managing her. So from now on, I'd like you to see my colleague to the man and he's going to continue your ongoing management. So I have had this scenario on a couple of occasions. I did have one woman and her husband and I've been seeing her I used to, I'd been seeing him for a while about depression, but I hadn't seen him for a while. And I started to see her and she disclosed about violence and she actually got an intervention order out and then he came to see me. But I called her first and actually said, I know you know that he's a patient of this clinic. In case he ever comes in to see me, would you be happy for me to say that I'm managing you so I can't manage both of you? 
I wouldn't say anything else. Is it okay if I just say that? And she said, sure, that's totally fine. Go ahead. I didn't even tell her that I was seeing him. I waited till he came in and saw me. And I said, okay, so I just want to let you know that I'm unable in the future to continue seeing you because I am seeing your ex-partner uh, and it's not appropriate for me to be managing both of you. It's nothing to do with you. It's not because I don't want to manage you. It's just that that's what the current recommendation is, is that I don't do that. And I'd like to put you onto one of my fellow GPs who's going to manage you in the future. Um, so that's what, what is recommended. That's what the white book does recommend. It does get a bit tricky sometimes. I, I get that, but um, we shouldn't be managing both. I won't run through that case because I don't think we've got a lot of time to. Really what it was illustrating was that often it takes several visits for things to change and, and it is like a chronic disease and, it, and it's not all going to happen at once necessarily. In terms of supporting your registrars, I'd really encourage you to get them to be asking about domestic violence, but you might need to tell them about what to do if someone does actually disclose about domestic violence so that they know what to do. Also, encourage them to know about local referral pathways so they know how to refer a patient. It might be worth saying to them, look, if you do end up seeing domestic violence cases, it's probably worth just discussing that with me, running it past me, because of course, we're, it's involved in risk. It's like dealing with suicidal patients. It's like doing a risk assessment. So also making sure they know their legal obligations, particularly about mandatory reporting of children and also domestic violence if you live in the Northern Territory. I won't go into talking about children, I mean, because I don't really have time, but just to let you know that you do need to be thinking about children. It's quite common for domestic violence and child abuse to coincide so please be asking about it um, and and being just being aware of it being really really aware of it domestic violence is really really common you probably see survivors every week even though you may not know about it we're going to ask women about domestic violence listen to and believe survivors assess their safety safety plan with them and refer to appropriate services. I'm sorry, I haven't left a lot of time for questions, but I thought I'd just quickly address that there was a question about dealing with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. Now, I'm not an expert in this at all, but I think, but in my reading, one of the most important things is to make sure that they understand about confidentiality. Uh, this is a little bit fraught in Northern Territory where, in fact, you do have to mandatory report about domestic violence. So confidentiality can be a, a bit of a tricky one, but where possible, you know, tell them that they have confidentiality, but tell them what the limits of that is. Um, frequently, Indigenous communities minimise the violence by using phrases like, oh, he was just being cheeky, it was a bit of a little fight, or we were just arguing... Um, and sometimes they worry that you're going to send them to the authorities if you use the words family violence or domestic violence. And more and more, the use of the word lateral violence is being used in Indigenous communities to describe uh, domestic violence because um, it doesn't have the connotation of, well, you're going to get sent to the authorities if you report this. Um, and really, programs should be community-driven, so as much as possible working with communities, yeah. So, Margot, did you have any other questions? Yes, I do. Um, the chat rooms had quite a few things. One of them was, is escape leaving the only realistic change? That's a meaty one. Yeah, you mean as in escaping from the yeah. relationships? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, look, initially for some women it is. Initially, the only way to get safe is to escape the situation and to either go to crisis accommodation or, I mean, a lot of women don't actually go to crisis accommodation and will go to a friend or family's house and actually start over with a friend or family. But eventually, once intervention orders are in place, uh, police are involved, 
and then family court, et cetera, et cetera, get involved, it may well be that the woman is able to actually get back into her house again. That's a really tricky one because the whole family court issue is a whole other question again. And I know a lot of um, survivors of domestic violence have a lot of issues with the family court. And even if there has been abuse, it's sometimes not even recognised by the family court. And children are put into a potentially abusive situations as well by the family court. So there can be some major issues there. But but there is absolutely possibility that she's going to end up in a good situation at the end of it. So it doesn't necessarily mean that escape means that her life has to stop and that her life has ended. I've spoken to many survivors who are many years post leaving relationships who have started over again and quite successfully done so. Yeah. Terrific. A couple more questions and a couple of comments. There was one comment here about services are sometimes not as helpful as needed because the uh, woman is not ready to leave, what then? Yeah. You know, either, yeah, yeah and no, I think that can be really tricky. So I think that's where 1-800-RESPECT is a good counselling service because, in fact, they're not about the woman leaving, they're about offering counselling. So um, that is often a good start uh, for a woman and that's, a, you know, I have women who have called that number a number of times. There are different organisations. She can actually say to the worker, I'm not planning to leave. Are there other organisations that I can get in touch with that will offer me counselling rather than discussion about leaving? And I think that's quite reasonable for her to ask that if she would like to ask that. And in fact, you could ask that if you wanted to ask that. You could even speak to the organisation and ask what to do. Yeah. Sure. There's a comment here, and I think it's important for us to reiterate this. We're coming to the end, everyone. We've got a comment here, very informative session, Jenny. What would you advise listeners who have been disturbed emotionally with tonight's presentation? We did cover that at the beginning. I think it's important to cover it again. Oh, uh, I absolutely agree because it is a harrowing topic. It absolutely is. The first thing that I'd say is if you've got a trusted friend or family member that you feel that you could actually talk to and just debrief with, I think that would be a really good idea. And then if you're still feeling disturbed and you're concerned of what what's going on for yourself, then getting in contact with your GP tomorrow would be a good idea as well. That, that would be what I would recommend, yeah. Couple more questions. We talked about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural lens. There are many different cultural lenses here, and his question was really about different cultural constructs and what goes on in different cultures around different thresholds around what's violence. It's a really good question, but I think what's really, really clear is here in Australia what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. In the same way that with child abuse, it, it is quite clear in Australia what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. I think the same thing holds for domestic violence. So any form of physical violence, any form of psychological abuse, any form of abuse of control is, is not okay and is never okay. No matter what culture you've come from, here in Australia, it's not actually okay, no matter what culture you've come from. I think there's another area that would be worth us going over and that's telephone consults and prompting questions or clues. And you mentioned about checking who else was in the vicinity and of course we put together some webinars about how to deal with uh, telephone consults so have a look at that if some of you are curious about that but do you have any particular clues when it's a telephone it's not a video consult other than asking is there anyone else in the in the vicinity listening in are you alone or whatever asking yes no questions 
they're the things that I'm always going to ask before I start the conversation. And then I'll usually use the similar questions that I always do, like, are you feeling safe at home? How are things going at home? How are things with your partner? Those sorts of questions like I normally would. But I'd probably be more inclined to ask in in telephone conversations about domestic violence than I even usually am, uh, given what's going on currently in the COVID situation and how I know that there are, there are many women out there who are actually stuck at home and this may be their only outlet and only way of actually seeking help. So I'd be more inclined than ever to be asking how are things going at home, how are things with your partner? And they may well say everything's fine and that's fine and dandy, but I, I think we should be asking as much as possible. It doesn't mean that I'm asking every single person. I mean, if someone is calling me... Um, you know, because they want a script renewal and, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be asking them, but, but any, anything that raises a red flag like I talked about earlier. There's one question particular to rural, single doctor, rural country towns that end up managing both the woman who's a victim of domestic violence and her partner. And I guess my comment about that is that's a very tricky situation and maybe using your colleagues if there's any possibility in any other town. I wondered if the Brains Trust or you, Jennifer, had any other comments on that. Oh, I agree with you. I think that's a really, really tough one. And I, I get that sometimes things can't be the way that we want them to be. And obviously if there's an emergency situation or he's got an acute problem and needs to come and see you for it, well, it may well be that you have to do that. But what you shouldn't really be doing is offering him counselling. Um, so if you're in the situation where he absolutely, there is no one else in town, you, you really have to be seeing them both because no one else can do it. What you don't want to do is be counselling both parties on different occasions. The reason is you risk accidentally saying the wrong thing to the wrong person and that might well put her at risk. So that that's why, yeah. Yeah. I think we've got a couple more questions. One of them is, are there any statistics on mur- the murder rate due to domestic violence since the pandemic in Australia or Victoria? Probably a bit early to tell yet. We haven't particularly noticed. There's some reports from overseas that perhaps it is increasing, uh, but it's just too, too early days yet. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.